As always, as you watch the kids leave here, remember they're still a part of us even though they're in a different location. And I'll breathe a silent prayer that the Lord would bless their time together now as they're going to get age-appropriate instruction in God's Word as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for how important Your Word is from the youngest ones to the oldest ones who are here. Thank You that in at least a figurative way we take our shoes off because we're on holy ground, recognizing that You, the God of this entire universe, has given us written instruction. You've given to us a love letter as well as a pattern for living. Help us to take it very seriously. And may your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and lives now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at 12 verses in Matthew 16 today, having to do with hostility from an old familiar enemy of the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And remember how unusual this is. Usually these two religious parties were at odds with each other. Usually the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't have any time at all for each other. But when they have a common enemy, it sometimes will bring two warring factions together, and that's the case here. They perceive the Lord Jesus as a greater enemy than each other. And so they came together to try to do all sorts of things to destroy the ministry and literally destroy the person of the Lord Jesus. So Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm going to begin this Sunday morning the same way I began last Sunday morning. As I read the Scripture this morning, did any of you think, didn't we just study that story not too long ago? No, we didn't, but we did study a very similar one. But it was about a year ago, and it took place in Matthew chapter 12. It was once again this sign of Jonah that Jesus was speaking about as he was facing the opposition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Very similar. These things kept happening. Remember, we talked about repetition being a key to learning. 
There is so much repetitive in the gospel. So many things that Jesus did over and over and over again. Some of them for the sake of the apostles, and I'm sure uh, most of them for the sake of all of us as well. The value of repetition in teaching. We mentioned that in connection with two great picnics that were very similar. The feeding of the 5,000 and then later the feeding of the 4,000. This week, more repetition. Pharisees and Sadducees are back. They're up to their old tricks. They wanted to test Jesus. Not test him to evaluate him, but test him to show him up. They wanted Jesus to look bad in front of the people who were there. But their teaching was so bad that Jesus warned his disciples twice about it. And finally, they understood what was going on. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's warning number one. Look at verse 11. Second part of the verse, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's a second warning. Look at verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It took them a while, but they finally got it. And we talked last week about the patience that God has with, had with them and has with us. That he'll tell us the same thing over and over again, and we don't get it, and we don't get it, and we don't get it, we don't believe it, we don't obey it. And then finally, it sinks in. And God is patient. God isn't going to go somewhere else and wait for us to figure it out by ourselves. He keeps on prompting us by His Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that we're constantly under the teaching of His Word, why we're constantly reading His Word, because we don't get things the first time or two or three or a dozen, maybe sometimes, just like the apostles. Let's see how this all develops. First of all, there was a request. The request came to Jesus about a sign from heaven. Who made the request? We've already seen it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees And immediately, we know that their motives are not good in asking this question. We know they're not good because it says they came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. In Mark's account of the same event, it says they came and began to argue with him. So we understand this was not a legitimate question to find information or to evaluate whether or not Jesus was who he claimed to be. This was overtly trying to trick Jesus, trying to entrap him, trying to make him look as bad as possible. Their hostility to Jesus has been clearly stated many times by now in the Scriptures. In fact, all the way back in Matthew chapter 12 that I alluded to uh, with the the first time of, of Jonah, the sign of Jonah, here's what John MacArthur has written. By the time the scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus to show them a special sign, their opposition to him had already hardened into implacable hatred. Let me define implacable because not everybody here went to Darby Cowan. Ruthless, cruel, unrelenting. Implacable hatred. It was already deeply embedded in them. So what we see from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even the the Herodians, we're told in, in one of the Scriptures too, what we're constantly seeing is this idea they've already made up their mind. Don't confuse me with any more facts. I don't want that. 
because what I want is to see Jesus destroyed. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, and we're going back again to those four, cha- four chapters before, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And that means to destroy him via his reputation, but even totally destroy him. Get him off the planet because he was a competition to them. Quoting again from one of the commentators, because of their repeated embarrassment in failing to prove Jesus was either teaching or doing anything unscriptural, the Pharisees were concerned about losing the reputation with the people. They wanted to be sure the next attempt to discredit him would succeed, and they believed that demanding a special sign from him would be certain to prove that he was an imposter and deceiver and would save their own reputations. What kind of a sign did they want? Well, the kind of sign that they were looking for was something from heaven. But it would have been a sign that he was who he claimed to be. The Son of Man, the Son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the King. The one the demon-oppressed men in chapter 8 referred to as the Son of God. They demanded a sign. And the idea was that if you could show us that sign from heaven, then maybe we would believe. The facts are that they wouldn't have believed anyway. But that's at least was their story. But again, one would question, what more would they need than they had already seen? And again, even back in Matthew chapter 12, when we were there, we mentioned some of these things. What more did they need? In chapter 8, verse 27, a question was asked, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? That question was asked by the apostles. In chapter 9, verse 26, it says, the report of this went through all that district. What is the this referred to here? This was the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. That should be quite noteworthy when something like that happens, and many people were there to witness it. Chapter 9, 31, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Who are they? They were two men who met Jesus, and they were blind when they met him, and when they walked away, they could see. They went away and spread his fame through all that district. You can see the accumulation of things that Jesus was doing. Chapter 9, verse 33. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Anything like what? Like a mute man oppressed by a demon being delivered from the demon and speaking immediately upon command of the Lord Jesus. Nothing was ever seen like that before in Israel. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. There wasn't anything that he couldn't cure. Now you imagine that today with the advances in medicine and everything that has gone on over the centuries and still nobody could ever come close to making a claim like that. But Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction. If it wasn't involving germs, if it was something, it didn't matter. Jesus healed all of that. Very interesting when John the Baptist was having a moment of uncertainty and he wanted to find out if Jesus was really who he claimed he was and who John had claimed him to be. 
And Jesus answered them, it says, when John's disciples came to inquire, he said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, notice this, And all the people were astonished and said, Can this be the Son of of David. Remember then, this is happening over and over and over and over again. What more does Jesus have to do? They want to test Him. Show us something. Let us see something spectacular. What more can He do than He's already done? Later, We see some of Jesus' parables. This is after Matthew 12 when all of this has taken place prior to that. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' many parables are recorded. Then we have the feeding of the 5,000. We have the feeding of the 4,000. Look back with me to chapter 14, verse 36 for just a moment. Chapter 14, verse 36. It's talking about people coming to see Jesus, and it says in verse 36, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Look at chapter 15, verse 30, as this continues. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others And they put them at his feet, and he healed them so that the crowd wondered. And remember, this was just last week. And wondered. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were even frightened when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Right after that was the feeding of the 4,000. And then we come into chapter 16. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come up to Jesus and basically saying, show me something. (laughs) What more could he show them? I illustrated this a year ago by saying this. If you can imagine a baseball scout trying out a particular player, he's given 10 chances to bat, 10 swings he gets, and all 10 of those are tape measure home runs, which if you're not familiar with that language means that they went a long, long way. 10 swings, 10 mammoth home runs. He ran a 100 meters in nine seconds, carrying the badly overweight first base coach on his back. He threw a ball with his back to the 420-foot sign on the outfield fence on a clothesline to home plate, which means that it didn't have any arc to it at all, just a, a solid throw, scorching the catcher's glove hand in the process. And after all that, the scout says, okay, show us what you can do. I didn't know what to tell the scout. After, oh, I'm sorry, that wasn't me we were talking. <clears throat> when they asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven, obviously what they're doing, they're asking Jesus for something from above, something that is otherworldly. They were not content to see what he could do down here on this planet. And we see this is going to happen. This is going to happen in the book of Revelation. This happens elsewhere. There were some signs from heaven, and there are going to be more signs from heaven. But in this particular case, they're looking for Jesus immediately. Show us a comet that we don't expect, or lightning, or thunder, or sudden darkness, or food raining down on them. You know, some of these things had already happened. They were looking for some Old Testament miracles that God had already done. 
wanted maybe a, a constellation to change its configuration, the moon to race across the sky, or this, probably the greatest sign of all, a Philadelphia Phillies World Series banner to fall down from above. Um, that would have taken some notice. So what's Jesus going to respond to all of this? What's his response to this request, show us a sign from heaven after all that he has done. And remember the miracles last week alone. Three days worth he was doing those same things. Now, talk about three years worth when Jesus was here on this planet. Jesus' response, he denied their request. He told them, you can read the signs in the sky. If you look at verses 2 and 3, you can read the signs in the sky. You're pretty good about that. You can prognosticate the weather that way. And then this old adage. How many of you have heard this before? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take morning. Morning. Have you heard that before? Um, that's an old adage. Wikipedia, not an inspired document. Not a document even. But Wikipedia talks about that rhyme. It says that rhyme is a rule of thumb used for weather forecasting during the past two millennia. It is based on the reddish glow of the morning or evening sky caused by haze or clouds related to storms in the region. Then they go on and describe that in great detail. But what it's describing is that simple adage, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky at morning, sailors take warning. The Pharisees and the Sadducees knew that old adage. They understood that. They predicted the weather by it, as have people for millennia afterwards. The Lord Jesus says, you can read those signs. You understand that. You've observed that. But you can't interpret the signs of the times. What are the signs of the times? They're the current events that are happening all around them before their very eyes, many of which I've just reviewed very quickly this morning. You can see what's going on in the sky, but you can't see what's going on right here before your very eyes. And then Jesus had an indictment of them. He brought an indictment in verse 4, and he's calling them directly to them. He says, an evil and adulterous generation. In other words, that's you. That's you that have just asked the question. That's you Pharisees. That's you Sadducees. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now that is a departure of note. Because what we're going to find out, if you turn your pages in Matthew, there are a few more things that happen, but we're very close now to the Lord Jesus entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We're very close to the final week of Jesus' life here on the planet. We're getting right there, and the Lord Jesus departed. The Lord Jesus is giving to them a terrible indictment. He is recognizing the fact that they have already hardened their hearts beyond the point that they're going to be teachable and so this becomes a very, very important situation. Jesus' indictment of them here in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. God's Word makes it clear that God is not so pleased with seeing is believing. That's what they're asking for here, seeing is believing. Show us more, show us more, show us something spectacular. God is much more interested in believing is seeing. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That would be people like us. We didn't have the advantage of seeing these things happen. We have the advantage of them being recorded in God's Word. And we've heard about these things and we believe. And there's a special blessing for that. But this evil and adulterous generation, they're saying, give me more, give me more. Well, they'd already seen over and over and over again. Now, the Lord Jesus says, no, this is the end. Uh, you're not going to, you're not going to get any more. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seven. We live by faith, not by sight. That's part of God's plan. Our faith, our believing Him. He could send somebody here right now to do all kinds of spectacular signs and wonders and miracles, but that's not what God is about. God is about faith, and He wants us to place our faith and trust in Him. And you'll notice when He calls them an evil and adulterous generation, the relationship between God and the Jews was often likened to a marriage. The apostasy, the idolatry are often presented as adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness to God. The questioners were representatives from other generations. They were evil and spiritually adulterous. Now, in the middle of this little dialogue that's going on, it's important to note Jesus' emotions. Because in Mark chapter 8, verse 12, which is a parallel account of where we are now, it says Jesus sighed deeply. He was asked to be shown a, to show a sign. And before he answered, it says he sighed deeply. He was greatly affected by the answer he had to give them when he denied their request. This is a pivotal moment. And the Lord Jesus obviously understands it. When it says he sighed deeply, the Greek verb is anastenaxis. That prefix ana greatly intensifies the meaning. In other words, the sigh seemed to come from the bottom of his heart. It stirred him to its depths. Why was Jesus so greatly affected at this time? Here's how one writer puts it. By asking the Lord to produce a sign, the religious leaders, in effect, were saying that they had rejected all of his previous miracles as spurious. He had already restored the handicapped, healed the sick, cleansed lepers, stilled the waves, fed the hungry, and even raised the dead. None of that was good enough. Jesus sighed deeply. These people were unteachable. They were not willing to listen. They wanted something from Jesus that would not have helped them. They didn't need more proof. They needed different hearts. They were just like their forefathers. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Very interesting how connected the Scripture is with itself. Hebrews chapter 3. And picking up in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. What it's saying is that times continue. They're the same. And fathers, we've got to break some of these chains. These people hadn't. It went way back to the forefathers, and it continued on and on. The unbelief, the rebellion, the hardness of heart, it was something that didn't seem to go away 
at any time. So Jesus' answer was, no sign would be given except one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And in Mark's Gospel, he goes into a little more detail of what's going on here. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But then he would come out, and that would be the greatest sign of all. The Believer's Bible Commentary says this, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so our Lord predicted that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This raises a problem if, as generally believed, Jesus was buried on Friday afternoon and rose again on Sunday morning. How can it be said that he was three days and three nights in the tomb? The answer is that in Jewish reckoning, any part of a day and night counts as a complete period. A day and a night makes an ona, spelled O-N-A-H, and a part of an ona is as the whole. That was a Jewish saying. A part of an ona is as the whole. D.A. Carson puts it a little more simply. A great prof from my alma mater, well-known in evangelical circles. D.A. Carson says, In rabbinic thought, a day and a night made an ona, and a part of an ona is as the whole. Thus, according to Jewish tradition, three days and three nights need mean no more than three days, or the combination of a part of three separate days. One other quote. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Of course, by giving this sign, Jesus was demonstrating that they had already decided to reject him. For him to fulfill this sign, he would have to be rejected, die, and be buried. By the time this sign would be accomplished, it would be too late for them to accept his right to rule over the nation as king. Therefore, we can see how climactic this particular point is. This is Jesus denying their request and then leaving them. They had reached the point of no return. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man who was suffering wanted to go back and warn his brothers. And he said to him, that is Jesus, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The point of no return. The difference is that of the will, not of the intellect. John 7, 17, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. That's what Jesus said. It's a matter of choice. If someone chooses to do God's will, he'll find out whether this is true or not. These people chose otherwise. Jesus had already said no to this kind of temptation. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, when he said to the devil, or when the devil said to him, first of all, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus was not in the business of showing off. That's what Satan was saying there. Show off. That's what these people were saying to him. Go ahead, show off. Show everybody how great you are. Let us see this great sign from heaven. Jesus wasn't in the business to show off. Jesus was in the business to share truth and have people accept that truth by faith. 
we have a repeated warning we've alluded to already with the disciples in mind. We're going to list a series of very short phrases, and it will carry us to the end of verse 12 here. The question is, were the disciples learning from things that had happened? Because these things were constantly happening. They were learning, but not quickly, and not without disappointing the Lord Jesus. They hadn't learned the first time. Remember back in Mark 6.52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In a series of short phrases, verse 5, if you look here in Matthew 16, verse 5, no bread. They forgot to bring any bread with them. Mark tells us they had only one loaf with them in the boat. So they did have one loaf. It was in the boat, but they hadn't brought anything with them. First warning in verse 6, Jesus gave them that warning. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, on the heels of the first four verses, the Pharisees, the Sadducees trying to trick Jesus, their theology was very poor. We've seen that as we've studied through Matthew. Jesus is warning them now. It has nothing to do with the fact that they didn't have any bread with them. But this warning is watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples made a miscalculation. They added 2 plus 2 and got 5 because what they're thinking about is no comprehension in verse 7. And you can see that. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. In other words, this must be about the bread situation. That's why he's talking about beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's got to be about the bread that we didn't bring. So no comprehension. They completely missed Jesus' meaning. They thought it had something to do with their, their forgetting more bread. And so it says they were discussing it. Interesting word, dialogizomai. Uh, dialogue, you can hear that in there, dialogizomai. Uh, this is a healthy discussion. This is a discussion where they are going back and forth with each other, and they must have been blaming each other. Somebody was supposed to bring the bread, somebody didn't bring it. What are we going to do now? We're going to be hungry again, and uh, there, there's, there's no good way out of this situation. So verses 8 through 11, really, here, Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing, and it's that same word, dialogizomai, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And then he goes on to question them. You should know what I did just recently. It shouldn't be a problem. Who cares whether there's not any bread? I, I showed you what I could do with bread. So little faith he's admonishing them about. And then beginning again with verses 8 through 11, Jesus asked a number of probing questions. In fact, he asked nine questions that must have individually and then cumulatively been a terrible rebuke to the apostles. Let me go through them very quickly, these nine questions. He said, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive. Remember Jesus' patience. Do you not yet perceive? You're just in one way like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They don't get it. 
and you're not getting it yet. Uh, third question, this one coming from Mark's account. Do you not yet understand? And again from Mark, are your hearts hardened? Back to Matthew. You're having eyes and you do not see, having ears and you do not hear. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves, 4,000 were fed. How many baskets were left over? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread. That's nine questions coming up saying to them, how come you're not getting it still? And then there's a second warning in verse 11, the second part of the verse that we alluded to earlier. The idea here is if five loaves were enough to feed 5,000 people, seven loaves were enough to feed 4,000 people, would not one loaf have been enough to feed 13 Couldn't Jesus have done something with one loaf to feed just 13 individuals? Wouldn't zero loaves be enough for Jesus? Does Jesus need anything? The Creator who could produce anything out of nothing? Couldn't Jesus be trusted to take care of this in every situation? And then, finally, the light comes on according to verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread. This has nothing to do with bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They had gone a long way around thinking just because they didn't bring any bread that Jesus was talking about that, and he wasn't, and they finally got it. Again, we see the value of repetition. We appreciate Jesus' patience with them and with us. Finally, they understood another piece of this puzzle. They had more to learn. They had more times when we would scratch our heads and say, why didn't they get it? But finally, they understood. Some people need extra help and maybe a little extra time to fully understand something. There's a story told about a man, and this is from a a, a while back. Some of you who are older will understand the dynamics here. Uh, before they had ATMs and before they had other ways of doing this, this man went into a bank and he said he wanted some money. The teller asked him to make out a check, but the man would not do it. So the teller said, if you won't sign the check, I can't give you any money. The man went across the street to another bank where the same conversation took place. But after this exchange, the teller reached across the counter, took him by the ears, and banged his head three times on the counter, after which the man took out a pen and calmly signed the check or deposit slip. The man then returned to the first bank and said, they gave me money across the street. How did that happen, asked the teller. They explained it to me, answered the man. Some people have a harder time understanding and need a little extra help. Here's the point. Jesus can do anything. He is all-powerful. He is in control. He loves us. He has compassion on us. Why do we live like we don't understand that? Are some of us wallowing in self-pity, living under the dark shadow of anxiety and fear or a poor me attitude? Are you preoccupied with the physical at the expense of the spiritual? Listen, is Jesus asking you a question? Do you not yet perceive? 
we need to take a lesson from the lives of the apostles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for your patience with us, and we understand the need to constantly be feeding ourselves with your word because we want to walk by faith and not by sight. And we don't get to see some of these things, but we get to read about them in the power of your Holy Spirit through your written word. And help our growing to continue. Help us to keep on being students of what you tell us to do. And thank you so much for this account once again of those who are trying to entrap the Lord Jesus. But it can't be done. And we thank you for the knowledge, the omniscience, the omnipotence of the Lord Jesus himself, our Savior whom we worship. We thank you in his name. Amen.